0: So, folks, would you stand in honor of God's Word? And listen, for this is the Word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, we are in a series called, What Does the Church Do? Looking at the book of Acts, last week we saw that what the church does is it fills the world with God's presence. As God's Spirit filled the believers, they they brought the presence of God into the world around them. Today we're going to see that what the church does is it preaches the good news of Jesus. So ask yourself, how do you share the good news? What do you tell people? How do you go about sharing with them the good news of, of what Jesus has done and what God has done in Jesus? You ever wondered how they shared back then? You know, we're committed at this church to showing you week in and week out how a book that's written 2,000 years ago is abundantly practical today, how it radically makes a difference in your life. But, I mean, I think if you're, if you're like me, sometimes I wonder, you know, How did they do it? What were their sermons like? The people that knew Jesus, that actually heard him preach, that heard him share about himself and about his kingdom, how did did they share? We get to see that today. This is a sermon that Peter preached. I get to preach on a sermon, right, as we go through this. And we're actually going to see how Peter explained the message of Jesus, how he explained the good news and the difference that Jesus makes in life. That's what we're going to see today. And we're going to look at this today in five points. Okay, there's five points. The outline there is, uh, is in your bullets in there on page seven. I'm just going to give you the first word on the five points, and then we'll hit the other blanks as we come to them in the sermon. So we're going to see first, Jesus' life. Second, Jesus' death. Third, Jesus' resurrection. Fourth, Jesus' ascension. And then last, our response. Okay, so the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and then our response. That's what we're going to look at today. And it's going to teach us all how to talk about Jesus, the significance of the good news. I've read this, I'll tell you in the past, I've read this passage before and been slightly underwhelmed feeling like, wow, is that it? I mean, be honest. But I can tell you that as I've grown in my understanding of the kingdom of God, as I've grown in my understanding of what Jesus was actually accomplishing and what the mission of the church is, this text has become explosive to me. It's become bigger and larger. It's become more penetrating into my heart, and it's given me a greater and greater vision for what God is doing today. And I think you're going to see that, and you're going to get excited as we look at this today. So first, Jesus' life. This is verse 22. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. So we see here, there's lots of things you can say about the life of Jesus. What Peter talks about is that Jesus' life was filled with miracles. These mighty works were acts of power, okay? Feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Healing people who were blind, giving sight to the blind, giving hearing to the deaf. Lame people who could not walk for decades were lifted up and their legs were strengthened so that they could walk, their legs were good as new, right? People who were healed from diseases, healed from... Ailments healed from being possessed by demons, being bound in addiction. They were set free. These were mighty works of power that Jesus did. His life, his ministry was filled with these things. Peter calls them mighty works and wonders. Wonders, this idea, this, this sort of tells us what the result was of the mighty works. right? The mighty works were miracles. The wonders were what happened. People saw this and were amazed. We saw this even at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. As the Spirit came down again, they spoke in tongues. The people were amazed and perplexed, verse 12, saying to one another, what does this mean? These works, these miracles of Jesus caused wonder. And they were signs. They were signs. You have to realize that the miracles that Jesus did were not just bare demonstrations of power. Jesus wasn't just showing off. He wasn't even just trying to draw attention to himself. All the miracles of Jesus, they were signs, which meant they were pointing to something. Okay, they're signs. As you drive on the freeway, right, you know, in half a mile, Pershing is coming up, right? This street is coming. And so I'm giving you a sign so you can get ready to get off if that's your exit. Okay, the 8 freeway is coming as you're driving north on the 5. Right, here it comes. You better be ready because if you're too far to the left, you're not going to make it. These signs tell us what's coming. These signs told about the world that was coming. Every single miracle of Jesus was not just, I mean, it's interesting. Peter is saying that God did these things through him to attest that Jesus was bringing a new world. And the miracles were signs to tell you what that world was going to be like. Okay? In that world. And this is the world that we all want. Right? This is the world that we long for, that our hearts get frustrated because we see our world in its, in its brokenness. There's lots of beauty, but there's things that are wrong. And we want, and our hearts cry out against those things. It's because we want a world where there is no hunger. Right? We long for a world where there is no homelessness. We long for a world where there are people who know how to know when a person is broken and and it's something that they're doing versus something that's being done to them, right? We long for leaders to have the kind of wisdom that would bring real solutions, not just a pat answer that doesn't fit on everybody that you try it on, right? We long for this world, and God was saying in the life of Jesus that this world is coming. And so the things that Jesus did were signs of the world that we're looking for. And in these miracles, in these miracles, God was proving that Jesus was the Savior. That he's the one that's bringing these things about, the world that we want. If you want to experience that world, it's coming through Jesus. He was a man attested to you by God with these miracles. God was saying, it's him. It's him. It's him. It's him. What's remarkable is that the people Peter was talking to, folks who didn't yet believe in Jesus, they knew about these things. The end of verse 22, these signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter was appealing to the collective understanding, the collective consciousness of the people. And so even people that didn't believe in Jesus, they all knew about these miracles. They didn't laugh Peter off the stage here, right? They didn't say, oh, you're making this up, because they knew. They had seen Jesus do these miracles. They knew Peter wasn't lying. They knew he wasn't making it up. And Peter was appealing to things that happened in history, okay? These were things that were credible. He was giving evidence. He's acting like a witness, Right? He calls himself a witness over and over again. He was testifying. He was on the stand. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Jesus did these things, and you know it. He did these things, and you know it. And so back then, everything Peter said had incredible, had a great deal of credibility. Okay, nobody doubted because they saw the miracles that Jesus did. Now for us today, Acts chapter 2 is reliable testimony for us, okay? Because the fact is, they didn't laugh Peter off the stage, right? We need to know that. As you, I mean, we have skeptics that are here that are exploring, that are somewhat critical about the claims of Christianity. This is testimony that these people, even the people who didn't believe in Jesus, didn't deny the miracles. They themselves knew what he did. And the fact that we have this written down is a a source of testimony for us, um, I'm reading through the book of Isaiah in my Bible reading in a year. My Bible reading in two years um, is how long it's taken me. And I've come up with these verses, and it's just funny how God brings these things up and they all fit. Listen to this. This is from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Write these things down. Write them in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. The Scripture is not just stories that people made up. This was actually witness. It was, it was testimony. It was proof, and it convinced people that the claims that it was making are true. And so for us today, this can be a source of credible testimony for the claims of Jesus. But we've got something in addition to this. We've got something. Not only do you see this in Scripture, the, the testimony of Jesus, but you see it in the lives of Christians. Okay? You can see mighty works and wonders and signs being done today in the lives of the followers of Jesus, okay? It may not be exorcisms. It may not be healings. Sometimes in one way, it might be even more powerful because it's closer to home, right? There are people in this room who are dealing with incredible difficulties, right? People who are suffering and have been transformed. People who have been locked in addiction and have been set free, There are people whose entire life was spiraling down and that process has stopped and they have become, the the, the spiral has been reversed. And the direction of their life now is 180 degrees in the opposite direction. These are mighty works of God. There are people who have been literally transformed. My whole life has been transformed and changed because God has done a mighty work in me. And so there are mighty works and wonders and signs that you can see in the lives of people who are following Jesus. And even beyond the radical transformations, there are people who are suffering and have been suffering for years, for decades, with the same debilitating illness, with the same weaknesses. There are people who are struggling with the same temptations and problems. And yet, in the midst of that, they are trusting in God they are showing that their faith in God isn't just dependent on if he does a miracle in their life. They love him so much. His power is so strong in their life that they continue to follow him even when they don't see anything change. Do you understand that? That is a miracle at work in someone's life. That is glorious and sometimes... It's amazing when God does a work, but he doesn't always, right? We all wish he'd just take away the struggle, right? But sometimes he leaves us in that struggle because he wants to see how much do you really love me? Would you love me if I didn't take this away? Do you love me just for my benefits? Do you love me just because I do things for you? Or do you love me for who I am? I mean, this, we see it today. Even today, we can see God at work in the lives of Christians. You know, if you know anybody who's walking with Jesus, you know that Jesus makes a difference and that God's power is is alive in their lives. That is proof. That is God continuing to attest that Jesus is the Savior. And so that's the life of Jesus. It is proof for all. That's the other blank on number one. Jesus' life is proof for all. Our second point, Jesus' death. This is verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What we see here in this passage, in this verse, are two truths. Okay, there's two truths that Peter's holding in tension here. He's saying, first... The, the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, it was part of God's plan. Okay? It was part of God's plan. It wasn't just that God knew that it was going to happen, that he foresaw it, although he did. But it was, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it was going to happen, but it was part of his plan. Okay? Why does Peter say this? Well, because for so many people, the crucifixion of Jesus meant that he was a failure. That he died meant that he was wrong, that he wasn't strong enough to overcome the enemies. He wasn't strong enough. His kingdom, you know, that crucifixion was what happened to false messiahs. And so Peter is saying, you know what? That was part of God's plan. He was delivered up. This was not a surprise to God. It was actually part of God's plan. Why? Because Jesus had a work to do, and the work wasn't only for himself. It wasn't only for himself. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And so Peter is saying, first, that this was part of God's plan. That's the one truth he's holding up. But then the second truth that he holds up is that they are still responsible. People are still responsible. Peter says, you crucified him by the hands of lawless men. And so the idea here is, I mean, again, these are two truths. God can use and does use even the worst things that people can do, okay? And so because evil things are happening, we see it time and time again. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of the people around us that when bad things happen, God uses those bad things and brings about good. That gives us comfort. It gives us hope. It gives us joy. And it's real. It's real. But at the same time, God does not let the guilty go unpunished. And again, if you're like me, you need both of those truths when you're in the midst of the fire. When you are struggling with it, when you are going through that hard time. Because sometimes it's not anybody's fault, right? You have encountered a trial. You're going through tribulations that are just the circumstances of life are working against you. And then you need to know that it didn't catch God off guard. You need to go that it wasn't a surprise to God and that he's going to use this to work out good in your life. But there are times when the evil that you're experiencing is because someone has done something to you, because you have been hurt and sinned against. And in that moment, you need to know that God will hold people accountable for what they've done, that God is the God of justice, And he will bring accountability. He'll bring everybody to account for the things that they did. And so though he works all things for good, he still holds people responsible. That's good news. That is good news. And Peter shares that because it's part of what people need to hear about Jesus and about his death. That Jesus' death brings both assurance and conviction. Okay, that's the blanks there under number two. Jesus' death is, brings assurance and conviction. All right, but Peter goes on. Point three is Jesus' resurrection. And this is verses 24 to 32. So you crucified him, but then God, verse 24, God raised him up. He loosed the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The resurrection shows Jesus' victory over death. Okay? The resurrection shows that Jesus' power was victorious even over death. Okay? Death has a just claim on all of us. We are all heading for the end of our lives. Right? Today we're a day closer than we were yesterday. Okay? Death has a just claim on us because the wages of sin is death. Okay, death is the consequence of sin being in the world, the consequence of us being sinners. Death is God responding and saying, when you cut yourselves off from me, when you cut yourself off, when you go your own way, when you leave my presence, when you leave my word, when you leave a relationship with me and pursue your own way, this is what happens. When you cut yourself off from the source of life, what you experience is death. And we experience that at the end of life, but also even in the midst of life, right? I mean, we know when we're selfish, we know what that does to our relationships. You know, when we're not caring about other people, we know how that causes us to grow inward in ways that aren't healthy, right? We become more narcissistic, more self-centered. And when those things happen to us, we experience in small ways, tastes of death in our relationships, in our psychology, in our, in our makeup. Like, life doesn't work well because we experience more and more of death. Okay? And that's what happens. God says that when you cut yourself off from me, that is what happens. So death has a claim on all of us because we all contribute. There are things done to us, but if we're going to be honest, we all contribute to the death in our lives. We all contribute to it. And so... But when you think about Jesus lying in the grave, when you think about Jesus in the tomb, that's not justice. If anybody doesn't belong dead, it's him because he had no sin. Jesus never sinned. And so though death has a just claim on us, it has no such claim on him. And the way Peter describes this, he uses this incredibly colorful analogy. He says, loosing the pangs of death. The pangs there, those are birth pangs. You think about a woman who is about to give labor, who begins to experience birth pangs, right? The pressure begins, right? The pressure begins to build because there is something coming, right? There is something coming because her body does not hold on to that baby anymore, And as the pangs grow and they increase, the pain increases, but it's to to bring forth life. And what Peter is saying is that when Jesus was laying in the grave, pressure began to build. Death was trying to hold on to him. Evil was trying to hold on to him. Sin and the power of sin was trying to hold on to him. And he began to push. And Jesus began to push And as sin tried to clamp down, as Satan tried to clamp down and keep him from coming back, it was not able to hold him in the grave. The resurrection means that Jesus is more powerful than the power of sin and death. Jesus' resurrection means that he has triumphed over death. He is more powerful. Death could not hold on to him. It couldn't hold on to him. Why is that important? Because when you believe in Him, the power that raised Him from the dead also works in you. And death and all of the tastes of death that you experience can't hold on to you either. That's good news. Paul says that if you believe in Jesus, you're united to him in his death and in his resurrection. And so even if you're not experiencing this, if you believe in Jesus, you have been raised to new life. Sin no longer has to control you anymore. This is the good news. We experience this and we testify, we witness this as we see the power of Jesus' resurrection alive in us. Okay? This isn't about you doing something to earn that power. This is a gift from God that's part of what you receive because you believe. You experience this resurrection. And Peter says this isn't something that should be unfamiliar to you all as people that were listening to him. They were Jews who were familiar with the Old Testament. Peter says this is what the Old Testament talks about this. This was predicted in the Old Testament and he quotes, verse, he quotes Psalm 16 in verses 25 to 28. And it's interesting, P- Peter actually teaches us how to read the Old Testament. He reads and he recalls this passage from Psalm 16, and he says, you know what? This is talking about Jesus. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, verse 27, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter reasons, right? He says, well, David wrote this, but... David died body's pretty corrupt you know corroded it's about a thousand years you know his grave is still with us to this day so we know it wasn't talking about him and as you understand the resurrection of Jesus you see that that, that, that David foresaw the coming of the Savior the coming of the Christ and prophesied about him I guess that, I mean, I think that just adds credibility. It adds credibility for, for his hearers because now they're being taught how to read the Bible. And hopefully, if they understand the message of Jesus, they'll be able to, as they read through Scripture, as you read through Scripture, you'll be able to read things and go, you know what, that's interesting because that might not have originally been talking about Jesus, but it sure sounds like him. You know, and in these ways, the Old Testament points us forward to the coming of Jesus. So that's the resurrection of Jesus. Our fourth point. Oh wait, so the blanks there. Jesus' resurrection, it brings victory and freedom. Victory and freedom. Victory over sin and death, victory over the grave, and freedom from sin. Amen. So our fourth point is Jesus' ascension. Ascension, right? He rose from the dead. We saw in chapter 1, he ascended into heaven. This is verses 33 to 36. It says, being therefore, verse 33, exalted at the right hand of God. Okay, exalted, that's the ascension. He is ascended and sits at the right hand of God. That was the place of power. When you sit at the right hand of God, you have all power. And that's what he says in Matthew 28. All power and authority has been given to me. So at his ascension, he ascends to God's right hand, and Jesus, he receives the rewards of his righteous life. If you read Revelation chapter 5, you can see the actual scene where this took place. When Jesus ascends into heaven and shows up in the throne room of God, You see the picture, it's displayed, and Jesus comes. They're looking, and there's nobody who's worthy to take the throne. There's nobody who's worthy to take this book, the book which is the title, Deed of the Universe, where the the person who takes it has authority and power. And they look all over, and there's no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth who can take the book or loose its seals. And John, who's seeing all this, starts weeping because there's no one there. And then someone says, don't weep, look the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome and he is worthy to take the book and to loose its seals. And John looks and he sees. And what does he see? He doesn't see a lion. He actually sees a lamb as though it was slain. And it comes and he takes, Jesus comes, he takes the book. And when he takes the book, all of heaven and earth erupts in praise. And Jesus receives glory and honor and worship and blessing because everybody realizes he is the one. In his ascension, Jesus is crowned and made king of heaven and earth, and he enters into the perfection of heaven. All of the brokenness of this life, he leaves and enters into the perfection of heaven, and so he receives the rewards. From the beginning, God has said, if you live perfectly, You can have the blessings of heaven. And we all fail, so we don't. But Jesus didn't. He comes and in his righteousness, lives his life, dies, raises, again, because it's wrong for him to be dead, ascends into heaven and receives the rewards. That's the story of Jesus. But what's amazing, what is compelling, not just, it's a great story about Jesus, but where it affects us. Is that he receives more than just the perfection of heaven? Because he came not just to do what we couldn't do, right? He came not just to be the perfect human being, to show all of us the way we should have done it. He came to be the Savior, He came to save us from our sins. And so when Jesus enters into heaven, he doesn't just receive all the blessings of heaven for himself, but he receives the thing that will bring salvation to all of his people. He receives the gift. He receives the promise of the Father. Before the whole creation happened, the Father and the Son had a covenant where the the Father said, to the Son, if you come and you save these people, I will give you salvation and your salvation will go to each one of them. The, The Gospel of John traces this through. We don't have time to look at that now. But this is what's happening. This is what Peter describes when Peter says in verse 33, he says, he ascended, he exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus ascends into heaven, receives the blessings, receives then the salvation, not just of himself, but the salvation of his people. And he pours it out on the church. That's what the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the blessings of heaven come to earth. Everything that heaven is. There's lots of things we can say about the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing in this text, though, is that the Spirit is what brings the glory and the blessings of heaven to earth. Jesus gets the Spirit. He receives the Spirit as a reward for his perfect life and then dumps it on the church. He pours out heaven. Heaven comes to earth in the Holy Spirit because Jesus, verse 33, poured it out This is why these people are so excited. This is why they're speaking in tongues. This is why God, it's because God is coming to earth. He's filling the hearts of people. They're so excited because they're experiencing heaven. They're saying, "You know what? We have a love we didn't have before. We have a joy we didn't have before. We have a desire to love God and honor him that we didn't have before." This is what happens. With Jesus, this is what he does. Peter says, this is what you're seeing and hearing. When you see the work of God operating in a Christian's life, what you are seeing is the results of Jesus pouring out his spirit on earth. This is why when we baptize, we pour water over someone. Because it's symbolic that the heavens are being poured out over this person. That the Holy Spirit is being poured out and bringing all the blessings of heaven. It's enveloping this person. And it does. It, and we'll talk about what it does here in a minute. So let me stop myself. So that's what you're seeing and hearing. And then Peter, again, quotes the Old Testament, verse 34. Right? This is kind of interesting because he's quoting David. This is Psalm 110. David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So you have David, and you have the Lord, and then you have David's Lord. Okay, that's what you got here. So what, what what is this? Well, David is saying, he's saying, God said to the Messiah. David sees the Messiah as his Lord. David sees God as his Lord. So the Lord said to my Lord. So in a sense, what you have is a conversation between the Father and the Son before the incarnation. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Peter is saying, Jesus is sitting at the right hand. He has dumped the Holy Spirit, and this is how he reigns. Jesus is reigning from heaven. He is reigning over all things. He is reigning on earth, and this is how he reigns. This is how Jesus rules. He fills his people with the presence of God. He fills his people with love, with blessings, with peace. He fills his people with courage, with strength. With boldness, he fills his people with wisdom so that they can do greater things in this city. That's how Jesus rules and reigns. And so the conclusion that Peter comes to, verse 36, let everyone know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord. That means Jesus is the true authority. I mean, so much greater than the authority that we see so often in the world. Right? Another great passage from Isaiah chapter 30. This one's incredible. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Listen to this. God waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. You see that? He exalts himself so to show mercy to you. Right? Where do we see that? My goodness, talk about a broken world. I mean, especially, we think about the workplace, right? People exalt themselves so they can get more money, so they can get more power, so they can get more prestige, so they can have more control. And yet God teaches us what real authority does. In God's mind, the purpose of authority is to be exalted so that it can show mercy to the people that they lead. That is real authority. And so when God makes Jesus Lord, He exalts Jesus not to beat you into a pulp, not to stomp on you, but so that he could be merciful to you, so that you could experience freedom and victory, grace, but then strength and boldness and power in your life. God made him Lord and Christ. Christ, he's the Savior. He's the representative of his people. And so if you're not sure what your story is, you can take Jesus's for your own if you trust him. If he's your savior, his death is your death to sin. His life is your perfection now. His resurrection means you have been raised to life. His ascension means that you receive the blessings of heaven. It's amazing. This is good news. And all this then... Brings us to our fifth point. Oh wait wait, so Jesus' ascension, it brings authority and blessing. Authority and blessing. That's point four. So point five, our response. And this is just the question, what you should do. That's that second blank there for your fifth point. What you should do. This is what they want to know. <laughs> Verse thirty seven. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? They had a problem. Okay? They had a problem because there were two things going on. This was the greatest news they'd ever heard. And they realized it was true. Right? That Jesus really was, it was like it all clicked for them. Right? The the miracles that he did and then the death, which seemed like that was a fair, so the miracles were invalidated, but then now he was resurrected from the dead. He's alive. He's been ascended into heaven and scripture's coming true. The promises of God are all coming true in Jesus and they're thinking this going, this is incredible, this is great. So they got that and they're excited about it. (laughs) But then they're feeling conviction because this guy that just ascended into heaven, the one that we now realize is the Savior, we killed him. What do we do? And I know some of you are feeling that way today. You're hearing this and saying, this is good news. I want this. I want Jesus. I'll follow him if this is what it means. And yet, when you stop and think, you realize, you know, I've lived a long time apart from God. I've done a lot of things in my life that are certainly not his, what he wants, that haven't built him up, that haven't honored him. What do I do? Peter says, you need to repent and be baptized. He says, repent and be baptized. That's it. Now, the word repent, you know, it has this holier-than-thou connotation. What repent means, it, just, it means you need to change your mind about Jesus. That's what it means. You need to change the way you think about Jesus. You need to realize that He is what God is doing in the world. You need to realize that He is the one that is bringing about the world that we're all longing for. If you haven't been living for him, you just need to change your mind about him. And You need to realize that Jesus is bringing the world that we all want. And that's helpful for us. I mean, for them, they thought that the world they all wanted would go through getting rid of Jesus. And they're realizing that they're wrong. For us, we think that the world that we want comes from pleasure, comes from sex, comes from relationships. Comes from money, comes from, you know, you fill in the blank, a career, comes from status. And we invest our lives pursuing happiness, pursuing meaning, pursuing significance with these other things. And what Peter is saying to you today, what I'm saying to you today, is that you need to repent. You need to change your thinking and realize that for you to receive the world that we all want, for you to receive the life that you're really looking for, the life that will truly make you happy, is that you need to make Jesus your Lord and your Christ. That's the road. And God has proven that that's the road by raising Jesus from the dead and bringing him up into heaven. I mean, that's it. And so you repent and then you get baptized. Being baptized, that was—it's it's public identification with Jesus. Okay, this was how they did it back then. It's how we continue to do it today. If you really wanted to say, "I am committed to Jesus," you get baptized. You're baptized into His name, and so that's why we do baptisms. When somebody who is who confesses their sin and repents, and they wanna—they wanna make Jesus Lord. They come and are baptized. And in a symbolic way, the waters of heaven are poured out over them. The blessings of salvation are poured out over them. And so if you haven't been baptized and you believe you need to be baptized, this is how it works, right? You repent and then are baptized into the name of Jesus. Okay, the water doesn't save, but the water gives you assurance of the salvation that's pictured, right? Right? And when that happens, heaven comes. Heaven comes. I mean, that's that's really the the crux of it. You know, this good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, this is great. And the question is, how do you participate in it? Repent, be baptized. That's how you connect into this. That's how this story becomes your story. Because when you do that, Peter says, you'll receive the forgiveness of, of your sins. Your sins will be washed away. To me, this is radical. God is the only one that I know of who would look the crucifiers of his son in the eye and say, 50 days later, right? We're not talking about a long time. 50 days after they did this, God looks them in the eye and says, I will forgive you if you repent. I will wash your sins away. And God is saying the exact same thing to each one of you today. I will forgive you if you repent. If you acknowledge and confess your sins, I will wash you clean. You'll be forgiven, and then you'll receive the Holy Spirit. So it won't just get poured out generally on the world. It'll get poured out on you. You will receive these blessings of heaven. Heaven will fill you up, and it will begin to change you from the inside out. And Peter says something else, verse 39. This promise, this promise is for you and for your children. This is important, because what Peter is doing here is he is, Quoting a passage from the Old Testament. He's quoting Genesis 17. When God began the whole Israel project with Abraham. In Genesis 17, he said, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. And this promise that I'm going to be your God and you will be my people. This promise is for you and your children after you. Promises for you. He says it 10 times in Genesis 17. The promise is for you and your children. It's for you and your children. It's for you and your children. And for 2,000 years, for 1,996 years, God has been saying over and over and over again to Israel, the promise is for you and for your children. It's for you and for your children. The principle being that when you commit to God, God commits to you and your kids. Okay, because when God saves you, you create a culture in your home and your children grow up in the faith. They don't always stay with the faith, but they grow up in it. And so for 2,000 years, God was saying, the promise is for you and your children. And so the sign of God's covenant was put on the children of believers. And so when Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost, 1,996 years later, right, right? When Israel for 2,000 years had been doing something the same way for 2,000, we don't even understand that, right? Our country's 250 years old, right? So think about eight times as long as, as, as America has been around. For 2,000 years, it was to you and your children, put the sign on your kids. It's for you and your children, put the sign on your kids. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost and says, God's doing something new. This is the new covenant. This is the new thing that we are waiting for. Jesus is the Messiah. His death and resurrection prove it. And if you want to benefit from it, you need to repent and be baptized because the promise is for you and your children. What do you think they would have thought? These were Jews he was talking to. They knew that what Peter was saying was that when I believe my kids are included, and we put the sign of the covenant on them too. If our children weren't supposed to be baptized, Peter never, ever would have been this confusing. This is why we baptize our children. It's one of the reasons. It's because for God, when you commit to him, he commits to you and your kids. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but that's all we have time for today. And so I just I want to end today just by saying what Peter says in verse 40. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Each and every one of you, save yourselves from this crooked generation. I'm not here to throw rocks at the culture. There is so much about our culture that I love. There is so much that reflects the image of God, and yet we live in a crooked generation. What that means is that we live in a generation that tries to teach us That we can find happiness, meaning, and purpose in things that can't deliver. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. A relationship will not save you. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, a relationship will not be your salvation. It can't make you happy. Your work cannot save you, that promotion will not give you lasting happiness popularity, and I've, I've done this in my own life. I have built my life around a relationship and never got it, right? I have built my life around popularity and then got it and it wasn't satisfying. I've built my life around trying to achieve a certain status and it doesn't satisfy. And this world, it's, just, it's trying to convince us to find happiness and hope from things that cannot deliver Save yourselves, whether it's for the first time or the 101st time. Save yourselves. Don't go down those roads. The only thing you need to do, because Jesus has done it all for you, is to repent and believe. That's it. 3,000 people did it that day. What about you? What about you today? Pray with me. Jesus, we come now, having heard your word, having seen the glory of what you have done. Jesus, there are people here who haven't yet committed themselves to you. There are people here who, are, who have been enthralled by this crooked generation, and they need you to save them. They need to commit to you being their Lord and Christ. They need to make you their Savior. If you're there now, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry I've lived apart from you. I'm sorry I have been pursuing happiness, significance, and purpose from things that aren't you and things that can't satisfy. And I repent. I want to make you Lord in my life and Savior of my life. Because of your death and resurrection, would you please forgive me? Not because I'm good, because I'm not, but save me because you died for me. Lord, for those who have been walking with you for a long time, would you please help them to experience more of your spirit so they would see you at work in their lives, to be encouraged so that all of us might grow, and then to have the courage and boldness and the excitement to share this good news with others.